Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 67. In this episode, I plan to take on a message entitled, Is God Enough? This question will be examined through the lens of 1 Samuel 8. Is God enough? That's a really interesting and yet difficult question to put some context to it. When life circumstances seem to be going a little bit out of control, and we would prefer those circumstances to be somewhat realigned or for justice to be served in a way that we would intend it to occur, do we ever ask ourselves the question, perhaps we never say it, but is it ever really within our heart Is God enough? Is his plan for us enough? Or is there a better way? You know, God's plan can be difficult for us to understand. His word can be hard for us to embrace. And oftentimes, as human beings, we find ourselves impatient. Is God enough? Where where is he in this circumstance? In our lack of understanding, we we see the world through our lens. We are not an infinite God with an infinite lens to see all at once. And so we begin to lack that understanding. And this type of a question, though we may have never thought of it this way, I think it's a question we as believers and unbelievers alike will ask at times. Is God enough? In other words, Is God doing the right thing? I would like to see him act in a different way. I would like to see him intervene. I would like the circumstances of my life to change. And and we oftentimes find ourselves frustrated, wanting a new plan, wanting a new direction. I'd like to bring your attention to a group of people that found themselves in this exact situation found in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Before we read it, the people in the story, they wanted something new. Now, new in the Bible is usually a good word. Uh, We have a new covenant. That covenant was sealed in precious blood. A body was given and blood was shed. And that new covenant is found in the sacrifice that Jesus himself made. We have uh, a new creation And those who come to Christ have the promise of having a new body in in resurrection glory in a day to come. And then, of course, we have the eternal state described as a new heaven and a new earth. The word new is often described in a very positive way. But for my message today, this is not a new that looks forward to glory and to what God has done or will do, but it's connected to a desire to do something different than the way God has designed it. The people in the story that we're going to read of, they wanted to have a king like everyone else. In other words, they wanted a God like the gods of the world. They didn't want the true God that had rescued them in the land of Egypt. They didn't want this God who had preserved them through difficult experiences. They wanted to be like everybody else. And sometimes I worry that as believers, we find ourselves in the position that we want a God like all the gods of the earth. 
The gods of the earth give the people that worship them what they want and how they want it. The God of the Bible, the God that we serve, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not a God like the pagans. He is the true living God. And though we may not understand all of his plans, we should rest assured by faith that God is enough. Let's look at the circumstances with these people. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, after hundreds of years of God being, God Yahweh being the king over the people of Israel, he was their king. He became king when he delivered them, and Moses describes him as king at Mount Sinai. When, when after that great event and those hundreds of years that had transpired, and it came with good days and it came with bad days, the bad days linked to the rebellion of the people and the good days with God's deliverance and God's preservation of them. And after going through all of those tough times in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find the conclusion of these people where they end up. Verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel, who was a judge at Ramah, and said to him, Because you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways, so they were frustrated with where this was going. They said, now appoint for us a king. Let's do something new. Point for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In their rebellion, you see, we see the grace of God allowing them to have what they want. Verse 8 says, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, see, this is his reign as king, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing it to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them. Here is the love and mercy and compassion of God. This is what they want. This is what they're going to have. But warn them solemnly. This is like a solemn oath. This is like a, 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 almost like a contract. Let them know that if they make this move, this is what's going to happen. Show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, I'm going to read it because I think it's very important. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from them. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And after this solemn warning, you think the people would say, thank you. 
That was a terrible idea, but they don't. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's a very, very sad conclusion. And of course, from this decision made, Israel would have many, many ungodly kings. And everything that God said would happen did in fact happen. Now, from that time onward, to the breakup of the nation of Israel, the north tribe with the south tribe, and eventually the breakup of both nations themselves into captivity, after all of the hundreds and hundreds of years of captivity, in the first century AD, when Jesus came into the world, Israel, by this point, was looking for a king. But it wasn't the king of the Sinai story. It wasn't the king of Yahweh God. It was the king described here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Yes, they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, but their vision of the kingdom was completely different than the vision that Jesus provided of the kingdom. Jesus' description of the kingdom was the exact opposite, and therefore it was a version that they rejected, just like their forefathers in 1 Samuel 8 rejected as well. You see, the king that first century Jews were looking for, and kingdom, they were looking for a kingdom and a king that was much like Rome and the emperor, but with a Jewish twist. They wanted their earthly king to go out in battle and to fight for them and to go through great conquest and to bring back the spoils and to reestablish a powerful nation in which nobody would be able to come up against them. Unfortunately for them and fortunately for us, that is not how God's kingdom works. I was asked a few weeks ago, uh, to answer a question in our Bible study, Romans chapter 14, verse 17 to 19, describes the characteristics of God's kingdom. And I was asked to uh, answer that particular question. And so I'll, I'll provide you the answer that I gave. God's kingdom is what it looks like when God is becoming king. We see that in the Mount Sinai story, and we see the breakup of that kingdom here in the first Samuel 8, when Israel rejected him. You see, God first became king as Yahweh at Sinai when the covenant was given to Israel. And this was just a forecast and a foretaste of what was to come in a future act in history when God himself would come in the person of Jesus Christ. With him came the preaching of the kingdom of God. You remember, the kingdom of God is at hand. A kingdom not from this world, as he told Pontius Pilate, and certainly nothing like this world. A kingdom that would be characterized by love and mercy and grace, forgiveness, service, suffering, and ultimately glory. That kingdom was inaugurated in the Christ event. I describe that as his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. You see, we today as Christians are living between 
the old age and the new age. We are living between, as Paul describes, the flesh, which is actually the corruptible part that has come as a result of sin. It includes what's in our mind as well as what's sin from our body. We are living between the flesh and the spirit. That is the life-giving uh, uh, power that comes from the Holy Spirit in the new birth when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living between those two. We are living between an old creation and a new creation. I was called to be a new creature in Christ, and yet the old creation is still all around me. And in fact, it is present in this current earthly body. We are already a kingdom of priests to our God, as Revelation describes, but we still wait for that kingdom to be here in its fullness. This is a, an incredible tension of living between two different periods of time. And it, it, it appears that the old and the new are overlapping together. The new is breaking free from the old. And this is where we find ourselves. And in the context of Romans 14 and the characteristics of God's kingdom, we learn three important principles from the Apostle Paul. That God's kingdom's char characteristics are seen in justice, in peace, and in joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, the kingdoms of this world send in their armies. They send their tanks, their bombs, and their planes. But Jesus sends the opposite. Matthew 5 describes for us what Paul sums up for the Christians in Romans 14. Justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit are the characteristics of God's kingdom. And in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus describes his kingdom as those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over sin, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for justice. There's one of Paul's descriptives. Those who are merciful, those whose hearts are pure, those who work for peace. Paul's second description of the characteristics of the kingdom. And then, he, then the Beatitudes describe those who are persecuted for doing right and ultimately for, despite all of it, coming through in joy and rejoicing through this suffering. And that is the third aspect that Paul describes in Romans 14, joy that is found in the Holy Spirit. These are the characteristics of God's kingdom. So to sum it all up for us and to challenge us as Christians today, what is our viewpoint. What is our perspective of God as king and of his kingdom? In other words, is God enough? Or do we want God and his kingdom to look like something we manufacture in our minds? A frustration in which we want God to act in a different way than he always intended. Are we looking today for Jesus' kingdom to return in its fullness to this earth and to look like all the other kingdoms around us? Are we going to be like 1 Samuel 8, Israel saying, I want, I want God to be and his kingdom to be like all the other kingdoms and nations around? Do we want to be like the first century Jews who rejected Jesus and his version of the kingdom because they wanted Rome with a Jewish twist? What are we looking for today as Christians? You look at some of the, the great uh, uh, nations of today, the United States of America, the world power, 
the, the, the leader of the free world. Are we looking for God's kingdom to be the United States with a Christian twist? Just replace the president with Jesus the Messiah? And that's the vision of God's kingdom? Sending in his tanks and his bombs and his planes and using power the way the world uses it? If it wasn't true in 1 Samuel 8, and it wasn't true in the gospel narratives, can I just challenge us all today as Christians? God is enough. His kingdom and his purposes, his plan is what we need to rest on. His is the kingdom that is unlike the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is characterized by justice, by peace, and by joy in the Holy Spirit. And though it is tough to live a life like that, with the Holy Spirit energized in us, giving us life and guiding us in our daily walk, may we be those who live out what Revelation described, a kingdom of priests to our God, that show his kingdom not by the vision of replacing our earthly concept of kingdom with Jesus as king, but instead looking at the kingdom the way God has designed it, as a kingdom of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, service and suffering, and ultimately glory. When Jesus returns, he will do what is right. He will establish everything that is right. He will do justice. Everyone will stand before him. Everything will be resolved. Everything will be remedied. But let us not lose sight that God is enough. May we be challenged as Christians not to fall into the trap of Israel of long ago and of the Jews of the first century when Jesus came. May our eyes be focused on our Lord, who he really is, and may we be called to be the priests of his kingdom as he intended, because ultimately, God is enough.